After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with Mind Rolling. And I think many of you guys and gals that are out there are going to know my guest today, Daryl Davis. Welcome, welcome, welcome to uh, Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, so I got to believe a lot of you know. Of course, once I give you just a little of the tidbit, because Daryl's going to tell the story, uh, I, it's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And it was all over the news and it was Daryl who had met the grand wizard, uh, of the Ku, Ku Klux Klan and actually got with him and, uh, they became friends. And, uh, for those of you who are listening and not watching on YouTube, of course, uh, Daryl is an African American gentleman. And that was a highly unusual thing, shall we say. Huh? Shall we? <laughs> I guess we shall. <laughs> but you know what? It, sh- it yeah. should become more common. Yeah. And that's really uh, one of the certainly purposes of this and the work you did without, I don't think you had nothing but your own personal uh, desire to really get at the bottom of what this uh, really is and what has been going on here for hundreds of years. Exactly, because nobody else could explain it to me. Yeah, right. So I figured I'd go to somebody who knows. <laughs> yeah, right. Somebody who practices hating. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, but not everybody does this. Anyhow, we want to get into it, but uh, can you just give a little background of, of growing up and um, where you did grow up and the kind of situation that you were in vis-a-vis racism and uh, sure. and your family, what kind of family and, and how that all affected you? Okay, well, I'm age 62 right now. And my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up as an American embassy brat. Oh. Starting, yeah, starting at the age of three, began traveling. And you go to different countries every two years. You're there for two years to come back home here to the States. You're here for a few months, possibly a year. And then you get reassigned to another country for two years. So I've lived all over the world, spent 10 years in Africa, lived in Europe, visited many countries in between. Today, uh, music is my profession. I'm a performer. And I perform all over the world as well. So when you combine my travels as a child with my travels now as an adult, I have been in a total of 57 different countries on six continents. So I've literally been exposed to a multitude of uh, ethnicities, colors of skin, you know, religions, cultures, all that kind of thing. And uh, starting at a young age, you know, it definitely impacted me and shaped my, uh, my perspectives. And I can tell you as an adult, um, one thing I've come to find out that no matter how far I've gone to the other side of of the planet or right next door, and no matter how many different people I've encountered or cultures, when I get home, I I conclude one thing. We all are human beings and we all want basically the same four or five things. You know, we want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be treated fairly. We want to be heard And we want the same things for our family as anybody else wants Mm. for theirs. Mm. And as long as we can understand, you know, those uh, those wants, uh, we can navigate pretty much through any society, including the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Do you know, Daryl, that what you just said is almost word for word said by the Dalai Lama? Is that right? Yeah. We are all the same. We have the same. We want 
to have peace. We want to be happy. We want to be safe. We are all the same. Yes. So I love that. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't think anybody would not know that. You know, all they have to do is just get out of their bubble and they'll see that with, with anybody they encounter. You know, you get to know somebody, you find out you have more in common than you do in contrast. Yeah, yeah. Difficult and quite the subject right now, given what we're going through with election yes, and indeed. all that and the yeah. polarization. So or a little bit about uh, you. I think you eventually ended up in Boston, no? Yeah, ended up in Boston and then out to the suburb of Boston called Belmont. And I was 10 years old. We'd just come back from overseas. I was in the fourth grade uh, going to school in Belmont, just got there. I was one of two black children in the entire school, myself in fourth grade and a little black girl in second grade. So consequently, all of my friends were, you know, were white. And, uh, you know, my guy friends were fourth and fifth graders, uh, many of them who were members of the Cub Scouts. And they invited me to join, which I did. A lot of fun. And we had a parade from Lexington to Concord, Mass., right next door, to commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. (laughs) And I was the only black scout in this parade. And people were cheering us and waving flags and yelling the British are coming and all that kind of thing. And we got to one point in the parade where all of a sudden I was getting hit by projectiles like rocks and bottles and uh, soda pop cans from just a small group mixed in with the larger group. It was mostly white people on the uh, sidelines. And in fact, it was all white people on the sidelines. And a small group, maybe two kids uh, my age, maybe a year or two older, and a couple of adults. And having never gone through this kind of thing, my first thought was, oh, those people over there, you know, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not realize I was only scouting, scout getting hit until all my troop leaders came running over and uh, covered me with their bodies. You know, these were all white people um, and protected me and shielded me out of, the, out of the danger. And even though I was asking them, you know, why are they doing that? You know, I didn't do anything to them. All they would do is just kind of shush me and rush me along, telling me everything would be okay. Well, when I got home, you know, later that day, my mother and father were putting band-aids on me and getting me cleaned up and asking me, how did I fall down and get scraped up? And I told, I told them I didn't fall down, told them what happened. And they sat me down and explained racism to me. And because I never had an experience like that before, and the fact that the people who were doing this to me looked just like many of my friends, I could, you know, my 10-year-old brain could not process the fact that it could be my skin color. And uh, my parents assured me that, you know, that's what was behind this thing called racism. I never even heard the word racism at that point in time. I had no reason to. And when I was overseas, I was around people from all over the world because I went to international schools. All my classmates were other embassy kids from Nigeria, Japan, France, Germany, Australia, Russia, you name it. We all were there together. And I never had any kind of problems. So my parents had to be lying to me about this this thing that they made up called racism. Because people don't do things like that. And the people, you know, doing this did not look any different to me than my fellow Americans at the embassy overseas or my little German friends, or for that matter, my friends right there in Belmont. So my, my parents, you know, had to be pulling my leg. I didn't believe them. Well, almost two months later, that same year, 1968, April the 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I remember it very well. Every major city in this country, including nearby Boston, uh, my hometown, Chicago, where I am right now, Washington, D.C., all burned to the ground in the name of this new word I had learned called racism. So now I understood that this thing does exist. My parents had not deceived me. But what I did not understand was why. Why does this exist? Why do people do this? And so I formed a question in my mind at that time which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 52 years, I've been pursuing the answer to that question. So who better to go to than somebody who would join an organization over 100 years old uh, that practices hating people who don't look like them or who don't believe as they believe? So I ended up going to the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, because I I have all these books on the Klan, I have books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the neo-Nazis, the Nazis in Germany, anti-Semitism. Back then, back then when you were going through all this, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 you know, it all talked about it, but it didn't give me the reason why. So I figured, okay, you know, I got to get away from the horse's mouth. 
So that's that's how that started. Mm. Oh my! And you know, some of this sounds like what just gonna you know you gotta know, and you're gonna really go in and do all the inquiry necessary to find out what you want to know. And so next thought is, well, let's go, as you just said, let's go to the, let's go to the source here, one of the sources, which, uh, who, you know, the Ku Klux Klan. But how many people would actually pick up the phone, or in your case, you got your secretary, I think, or yeah. your assistant, to, hey, I want to talk to, I mean, what? Wh- I mean, there got yeah, to be mean, fear that was going on. In, no, in your I, mind. I didn't have any fear because you know, uh, and I still don't. Um, I think a lot of it really had to do with my background because at a young age I had been exposed to all kinds of different people, all kinds of different cultures. So I just figured the clan just to be another culture. That's all. Uh, now I will say this: perhaps if I had grown up here my entire life and and had been exposed to this kind of thing early on. Would I be doing this today? Maybe not. Maybe I'd be staying as far away from them as I could. Yeah, I, I've been uh, told by various uh, friends that I've been talking to about, you know, since George Floyd, when this is all, of course, come mm-hmm. to such uh, uh, technicolor, so to speak. Uh, and one of them said, well, you know that as a child, we all got the story from our parents, which was... When you go outside, this is how you have to behave around white people, police, etc., etc., mm-hmm. and that immediately, of course, instilled a fear right off the bat. Somehow, I guess you circumvented that by virtue of the kind of life your parents had. Yeah, and see, um, you know, people ask me, "Well, don't you think you know your your parents should have told you about this kind of thing?" you know, early on. Um, and I thought about it and I kind of wondered, well, how come they didn't tell me about this? You know, why was I subjected to this and, and didn't know anything about it, didn't even know it existed. But you know what? In retrospect, I think they did the right thing by not telling me about it. Uh, because supposing they had told me things like this and then I had gone into a, a, a safe environment like I was in overseas, a you know, diplomatic community, would I be looking at every white person with, with uh, suspicion? You know, that would not have been fair to them, would it? You know, if, if I had some, some predisposition or prejudice, if you will, against somebody because of the color of their skin, because my parents told me, you know, there's some white people that, you know, may not like you because of the color of your skin. So just, you know, be cool, be careful. Then I'd be looking at every white person with that in mind. Mm. And, and that would have prejudiced me. So I think in retrospect, it's probably good the way it happened. But I will say... Uh, you know, I was here that, you know, I was home back in the States since the age, well, on and off since the age of 13. Um, so when I turned 16 and started driving, oh, yeah, I got to talk all right. I, I got to talk, you know, all about the police and what to do, what not to do. Uh, you know, as every black child gets, you know, when, when he or she goes out driving at that age. And we lived, you know, we, we, when we moved back here, uh, we lived in a, in a uh, predominantly white area. Uh, you know, upper class uh, area. And um, even before I was driving, my father uh, was driving a Mercedes and uh, he was getting stopped right there in our neighborhood. Oh, you know? No. Yeah. I mean. And um, and then, uh, you know, I started driving and, I, and I'm just driving Chevrolet or something and I'm getting stopped. But, you know, he had told me. And at first, again, I didn't believe it because, uh, you know, it never happened to me before. And it was funny because the cop would, would ask me for my license and registration and I'd give it to him and I, I asked him, you know, why are you stopping me? And he'd say, I'll be right with you. I mean, you know, this would be like two blocks from my house on my street. <laughs> and um, he said, I'll be right with you. He'd go back to his car. Now, back then, you know, they didn't have computers in the car. You know, they had to get on the radio and call the headquarters and they'd look up stuff, I guess, on index cards or something. And uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, he'd come back and say, OK, Mr. Davis, you know, you're, you're free to leave. And um, I said, well, why did you stop me? And they'd say, well, he'd say, uh, well, yeah, we had a, a report this morning of a vehicle matching this uh, description that was stolen from the neighborhood. Uh, so I'm thinking, oh, wow, no, that's exciting. You know, a car thief in my neighborhood. And then it would happen again a couple weeks later, different cop, but it'd be the same excuse. 
And so now I'm thinking, wait a minute, hold on. You know, if you, you know, if you thought I stole this car from this neighborhood this morning, why would I still be driving it around the same neighborhood this afternoon? You know, and the, sir, you're free to leave. Sir, you're free to leave. You know, they didn't want to answer the question. Right, right. It's extraordinary. But you know what? It still goes on. And that's the same. Oh, yeah. Uh, more and more. And, you know, uh, these, you see these, I mean, to me, looking at television or watching online or whatever, you see these cops that are doing this. It's like they've gone crazy. And, and they're so, um, those tendrils of anger, separation, fear, are, and ignorance are so embedded that they go out of control. And, and it's just amazing to watch. Well, you know, you know blank I, I, eyes and the whole thing. I don't want to paint, you know, all, all police officers, you know, with that, with that broad brush. But here's the problem, as, as I see it. Uh, we always talk about two categories of, uh, of cops, the good cops and the bad cops. And what happens is when, when these, um, these bad cops, uh, if, if they get charged and if they, uh, well, well, when they're first accused or whatever, um, the PIO, which is a uh, public information officer in the department, or the police chief will come on the on the media and say, you know, uh, he followed proper police procedure. He mm-hmm. feared for his life. Those are the you know catchphrases, and um, and then that you know it's being investigated. Well, in the off chance that the investigation does conclude that he had done something wrong, and usually it's not the internal investigation, the internal affairs. It's the outside court that does that uh, that that convicts him. Then the PIO comes back on the air or the chief and says, you know, in a department this large, you're bound to have a few bad apples. Wrong. There are more bad apples than good apples. And I'll tell you why. Because if there were so many good apples, why don't they bind together and get rid of the bad apples? Why why are all these good apples going to allow just a few bad apples to tarnish their badges? If they didn't sign up for that kind of behavior, why let a few bad people tarnish yeah. your reputation. Yeah. Okay, so I say there are more than two categories. There's a third category that's not even talked about. All right, we all know what bad cops do. A good cop will not do those things, but the good cop will turn a blind eye uh, because of that blue wall of silence, that blue code of silence, all right? So he, he or she will not participate, but they will not tell. They will not snitch on their fellow officers. Uh, because if they do, they're subject to um, to uh, you know ramifications from their own from their own uh, colleagues. Uh, the third category is the honest cop, and that's the minority. The very few of those, uh, they will tell, and when they do, again, they're subjected to uh, to to ramifications. Um, you know, they go on a call and there's a shootout, and they call for backup, and the backup knows that cop snitched. Either they yeah, don't come. Yeah. Or they're very slow to come. You remember Serpico, right? Yep, yep. yep yeah. Yep. So we need some kind of mechanism for the good cops who want to tell but are afraid to, to be able to come forward and and reveal this information without either anonymously or without a fear of um, of ramification. Yeah, but it's so systemic. I mean, I think yeah. we need in the in the long long run some real education to happen and to to do that is to be is to basically have the courage to do what you did because it it speaks exactly to what really has to happen which is gets down to being able to communicate with one another so i guess this is a good time can you tell us the, the story which one which one the the Ku Klux 36 Klan. years of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Ku Klux Klan and, and uh, how you decided to get with him and so on. Yeah, sure. So I, I had my secretary call the leader of the Klan here in the state of Maryland. A state leader is what's known as a grand dragon. The word grand, uh, the prefix before any other word, means state level, state officer. So dragon would be the highest in the state, like what we would call a governor 
Mm. Uh, a grand caliph would be like a lieutenant governor. A national leader is known as the imperial wizard. Anybody who is prefixed with the word imperial means that individual is on the national level. So imperial wizard would be like a president. Uh, imperial caliph would be like a vice president. And then within the, uh, within the state, you have counties. A county leader would be called the great titan. Anybody on the great level is county level. Within the county, you have districts. Uh, we would call a district leader, a mayor, a councilman, an alderman. That individual is known as an exalted cyclops. And then below that, you just have rank and file plain white robe members. Um, so the grand dragon for the state of Maryland was a fellow named Roger Kelly. And uh, I, I, I got his phone number from another uh, Klansman uh, who trusted me and had become friends of mine. But he did not want to introduce me to Mr. Kelly because he was in fear of his own safety and my safety if he had taken a black man to see Roger Kelly. And uh, he warned me. He did not want me to, 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 to uh, pursue this endeavor of, uh, of writing this book and wanting to interview uh, these people. He said, Daryl, do not fool with Roger Kelly. He will kill you. And I said, well, that's the whole reason I need to see Mr. Kelly. I want to find out why would he kill me? All he, all he sees is my skin color, and that makes him want to kill me? You know, I, I need to understand this mindset. So he made me promise that, you know, that I would not give uh, Mr. Kelly uh, the source of, of my getting his uh, home address and phone number and stuff. I said, okay. So I had my, uh, my secretary give him a call, Mary. And Mary was white. And I only mentioned that, not that I care, but because I did not want to call Mr. Kelly myself. I figured he might detect in my voice that I'm black and say, I'm not talking to you, click. Mm. And the, my whole project would have ended before it ever got started. So I knew that if she called, he would know by her voice that she's white. And he would not automatically assume that this white woman was uh, working for a black man, especially a black man who's writing a book on the Klan, because, you know, they did not exist. My, my book was the first book written by a black author on the Klan from the perspective of sitting down face to face and interviewing them. So she called him and I told her, do not tell him that I'm black unless he asks. If he asks, you know, don't lie to him, but don't allude to it. Don't give him reason to ask. She said, okay. Now, another reason is, you know, if he knew I was black and still decided to come and do the interview, um, he might have different answers prepared for me in the interim than he would have for a white interviewer. So I wanted, you know, to be spontaneous, candid. So she called. He didn't ask what color I was. Set up the interview for 5.15 on a Sunday afternoon. And we arranged to meet at this motel up, you know, near his neck of the woods. And so Mary and I got there super early. And uh, we got the room and I gave her some money and sent her down the hall to get soda pop out of the machine and put it in the ice bucket, fill it with ice, get it all cold. Because I wanted to be hospitable and offer my guest you know, a cold beverage if you wanted one. I had no idea what this man was going to do when he showed up and saw me. You know, would he say, I'm not talking to you and turn around and walk away? Would he come in the room and do the interview or would he attack me? I had no idea, but I knew that I was going to be hospitable. So got, the, got that all set up, set it on the dresser. And I took the little lamp table and put it in the most obscure corner of the room where you couldn't see from the doorway. And I set up a chair on one side for him, and a chair on the other side for me. And I had a black uh, canvas bag containing my uh, cassette recorder, which I set in the middle of the table, all in hopes that he would come in and allow me to record. And uh, in, also in the bag, I had uh, blank cassettes and a copy of the Bible, because the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization. And they claim that the Bible preaches racial separation. Now, I'm a Christian. I, I've read the Bible, and I've never seen that in there. So I, I needed somebody to show me. And so I had, it, I had it handy inside my bag. So right on time, 5.15, knock on the door. And uh, Mary hops up and runs around the corner and opens the door. And in walks the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk means bodyguard, security. Grand, of course, state level. So be the bodyguard to the Grand Dragon. So he comes in. He's wearing uh, military camouflage. And the Ku Klux Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross, patch on his chest over here. And then the initials KKK over here and embroidered on his barrette cap, it said Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a semi-automatic handgun in a holster. He comes in and Mr. Kelly is walking right behind him in a dark blue suit and tie. And when the Nighthawk turned the corner and saw me, he just froze in his tracks. And Mr. Kelly was, you know, right behind him and did not realize that, you know, that his Nighthawk had stopped. 
And he and Mr. Kelly kept walking right into the guy's back and knocked him forward. So now they both are like stumbling around uh, trying to get their balance back. <laughs> I love it. And I was sitting at the table. Yeah, it was like a comedy of errors here. And I'm just sitting at the table, you know, watching them. And I could read their faces. I mean, their faces spoke loud and clear. And what their faces were saying was, did the desk clerk give us the wrong room number? You know, is this an ambush? And um, I, I, I realized the apprehension. I, I understood why, because, you know, they're looking for a white guy. And so I stood up and I displayed my palms to show I had nothing in my hands. And I walked forward, extended my right hand, and I said, hi, Mr. Kelly, I'm Daryl Davis. And he shook my hand. And the Nighthawk shook my hand. So I welcomed him in and said, come on in, gentlemen, please, come on in. Mr. Kelly, please have a seat. And so Mr. Kelly sat down, and the Nighthawk stood to his right at attention. And before I could sit down, Mr. Kelly wanted to see my ID. And uh, so I showed him my ID. And then he, he made uh, mention of my street. He says, oh, you live on such and such street. And I'm thinking to myself, why is he um, talking about my street? You know, uh, is he going to come to my house and burn a cross? You know, all he has to do is look at my picture, look at my name, match it up with me, and give me back my license. You don't need to be memorizing my address. So I did not want to let him know, you know, that uh, he had unsettled me a little bit. But what I did want to let him know was, you know, under no circumstances, you know, should you come to my house with any nefarious, you know, thoughts. And so I said to him, I said, yes, Mr. Kelly. I said, that is where I live. I said, and you live at? And I named his house number and his street. To, to let him know I knew where he lived also. So, you know, we're going to confine all this visiting to the motel room. And um, I did not find out that day, but it was many months down the road, that I had been presumptuous. I had no reason to fear him coming to my house for any, you know, bad purpose. He recognized my street because one of his members lived down the road from me. Um, and Mr. Kelly had to travel down my street to get to that guy's neighborhood. So, uh-huh. pure coincidence. But I had no way of knowing that at the time. And uh, that guy is in a federal prison today for a hate crime he would later commit. Uh, Anyway, um, we got on with this interview. And every time uh, Mr. Kelly made a reference to the Bible, I'd reach down and get my Bible out and hand it to him. Or my cassette tape had had used up. I'd reach down and get a fresh tape and change it. Every time I'd reach down to get something out of the bag, the Nighthawk would reach up to his hip and put his hand on the butt of his gun. And, you know... I was okay with that because I, I understood what he was doing. You know, it's his job to protect his boss, and he has no idea what's in my bag. So, you know, he was doing his job. And after a while, he relaxed. I went in and out of the bag. Um, you know, he didn't move. And just over perhaps an hour, a little, little more than an hour after, after we got started, there was a, a very quick, short noise that came out of nowhere. I got a that was it. It was all there was to it. And because it happened so randomly, as he and I were talking, um, and and I my you know my ear could not discern what it was because it, it had come and gone like that. I perceived it to be an ominous, threatening noise, and so I immediately went into survival mode. I knew that he had made the noise because I did not make the noise, so therefore he has to do it, and. I feared for my life. And when you fear for your life, you go into what's called survival mode. And you do whatever you have to do to survive whatever is causing you this fear. Because you think, you know, your life, your life may end. And given the circumstances, here I am, a black guy sitting in a room with, a, with the head of the Ku Klux Klan, and there's an armed guy standing, you know, right next to him with a gun, um, I don't have a gun. My secretary doesn't have a gun, you know, and, and the guy who gave me this guy's information told me not to fool with him because he'd kill me. So I got, I got all this going on in my head, and now this guy is making some weird noise. So I went into survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you can do perhaps one of four things. Uh, sometimes people faint because the fear is so great, their brain can't process it, and the brain shuts down, and, and they fall out and pass out. I don't do that. Uh, other people, their, their muscles begin contracting and, and they can't move. They're frozen. That's called paralysis by fear. Uh, I don't do that either. The third thing people will do is to run away. And that is the best option, to separate yourself 
from the source of fear. Get as much uh, distance between you and whatever's scaring you that, you know, that you can get. Get out of there. Um, that is what I would have done had that been available to me. Uh, but there's no outrunning a bullet in a motel room. So the last option is to do a preemptive strike, to get them before they get you. And I had come up out of my seat, and I was going to pounce across that table and attack them and take them both down to the ground and, uh, and disarm the, uh, the Nighthawk. I did not know if Mr. Kelly had a weapon up under his suit jacket or not. All I knew was I did not have one. Um, I, I knew the Nighthawk had one because I could see it. So that was my primary thing, to get his gun first. And, but at the same time, take Mr. Kelly down. And um, when I came up, I hit the table, and I'm looking right into Mr. Kelly's eyes because he's the one who made this noise. And I'm trying to figure out what had he done. And I didn't say anything because my eyes were speaking for me. And my eyes were asking him, what did you just do? And his eyes were fixated on my eyes. He didn't say a word either, but I could read his eyes. His eyes were saying to me, you know, you know, when you go on, on high alert and, you're, and your radar is working, it's almost telepathic. You know, I, I, I could just read him. And um, his eyes were saying to me, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand again on his gun. He never drew it, but he had his hand there. And he's like looking back and forth between both of us, like what do you, what do either one of y'all just do? And so Mary was sitting on top of the dresser to my left because there were no more you know, chairs left in the room. And she realized what had happened. And she began explaining it and it happened again. And we all began laughing as she was explaining it. The ice in the ice bucket had started to melt and the cans of soda were shifting down the mountain of ice. That was it. And we, we began laughing at how ignorant we all were. I mean, somebody could have gotten shot over an ice cube. That's how ridiculous it was. I mean, that would not have been funny, but just the notion that we all became fearful of one another over an ice cube, you know? But this, I won't say that, that this moment was a learning moment. That would come later. But this moment was a teaching moment. And, you know, it, it, it humanized all of us in that room because we all felt the same thing, which is what human beings feel, you know? I felt what he was feeling. He felt what I was feeling. We all felt that fear and that, and that accusation, that being accusatory of one another. Because, you know, when you fear something, you, you, you're going to blame somebody else for it. And so I'm blaming him. He's blaming me. The Nighthawk is, is going to blame either one of us. You know? But uh, anyway, uh, the lesson taught is this. All because some foreign entity, that being the bucket of ice cans of soda, of which we were ignorant, entered into our little comfort zone by way of the noise that it made, we became fearful of one another. So the lesson taught is ignorance breeds fear. We fear the things we don't understand. And if we do not keep that fear in check, that fear in turn will escalate and breed hatred because we hate the things that frighten us. And if we don't keep that hatred in check, that escalates into anger and breeds destruction because we want to destroy the things that we hate. Why? Because they, they scared us. We, you know, they frightened us. But guess what? At the end of the day, they may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. So we saw the whole chain almost unfold or unravel to completion. Completion would have been that last component had the destruction, had the Nighthawk put out his gun and shot somebody, namely me or my secretary, or had I pounced across the table and hurt one of them, you know, trying to do my job, which is to protect her and protect me. And he's doing his job. Um, so fortunately, it stopped us short of that. But we did see that whole chain unraveled to full completion three years ago last month on August 12th, 2017. Uh, the whole country saw it in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is two, uh, two hours from where I'm sitting right now. 
at this big uh, white supremacist rally called Unite the Right. And on that day in Charlottesville, there was a lot of ignorance. There was a lot of fear in Charlottesville that day. And that escalated into a lot of hatred. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and tried to murder as many people, counter-protesters, as he could by driving full force into the crowd. He succeeded in injuring 20 people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. So ignorance breeds fear, fear breeds destruction, and I'm sorry, fear breeds hate, and hate breeds destruction. And I can tell you something, um, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, that is the, is the chain of events that happens in these kind of scenarios with ignorance. Because I have spoken to young children before, like in middle schools and things like that. And I'll just be talking casually with them, like, like we are right now. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I'll say, hey, 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 there's a snake under your chair. And I'll point to some kid in the front row. And just at my suggestion that there is a snake under his or her chair, everybody in the row, including him or her, and 10 rows back, five rows back, scream <laughs> and throw their legs up in the air at my suggestion of there being a snake in the front row, right? 10 rows back, they're throwing their legs up in the air. And so then they realize, you know, there is no snake and they start laughing. We're all laughing. And then I asked them, you know, why, why were you all yelling and screaming and throwing your legs in the air? And the responses you get are, I'm afraid of snakes. I hate snakes. You know, they're slimy, they're poisonous. There's your fear, you know, I'm afraid of snakes. Uh, there's your hate, I hate snakes. There's your ignorance, they're slimy and they're poisonous. If, you know, if you've ever touched a snake, it's not slimy, it's dry. And not all snakes are poisonous, so there's your ignorance. So the ignorance breeds the fear, the fear breeds the hatred. So then I say to them, I say, okay, we know there's no snake under your chair. However, let's just say there really was a snake under your chair that I was pointing out. What would you want me to do about it? You know what they say? Kill it. Mm. There's your destruction. And these, right. are, these are little right. kids, you know? Right. Boy, oh boy. All right, so in, in the, so that moment happened in the motel room. Right. And you feel like he, um, what is his name? Roger. Mr. Kelly. Yeah. Mr. Kelly. Mr. Did Kelly. You feel he had some awareness, uh, uh, certainly understood the ludicrous nature of that moment, thinking that you had done something, you thinking he had done something, and, and the aggressions. Do you think he got awareness of, 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 the, of, uh, of anything? I, I don't think, as I said, I don't think that was a learning moment at the time. It was a teaching moment. Mm -hmm. But the learning would come later because I think, you know, it was, it, it happened all like that. He didn't have time to process it in the aftermath, but, you know, after he went home or whatever and thought about what happened, what transpired, what could have happened, you know, he realized, you know what, this guy is, is no different than I am. He has the same feelings I have. He, he reacted the same way I reacted. You know, he thought I did it. I thought he did it. So, you know, that humanized me, but it, it, he didn't learn that immediately. It was later. And, and same thing for me. You know, I processed it, processed it at home too. Like, wow, you know, you know, we came very close to having a major incident here over a piece of ice. You know, um, that, you know that was just crazy. But he, I, I, you know, I, I felt, you know, I had to excuse him for feeling that way because I felt the same way about him. Yeah. I thought he had done something. Yeah. So, you know, we had humanized one another. And so you, you, let, you let that settle in. And another thing is this. During uh, my interview with him, even within the first 10 minutes, um, you know, I had asked him, you know, why does he hate me? Why does he hate black people? Uh, the reason given, black people are prone to crime. There are more black criminals than white criminals. And that is evidenced by the, 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 the higher number of blacks in prison than white people. So I'm, I'm sitting two feet from him, right? And I'm listening to this, telling me that I'm a criminal because of, of my black skin. And, you know, he sees that there are more black people in prison than white people. That is true. There are. 
But it's a half truth because he's not seeing the reason they are there. Yeah. You know, the inequality of the of the uh, judicial system, um, the fact that even poor white people and poor black people perhaps could not afford adequate legal representation. And they took a plea to something they didn't even do. So there they are. Right. All he sees is the result and it fits his narrative. So that's, you know, one's perspective is one's reality. So then he goes on to tell me that black people are inherently lazy. Uh, we prefer to scam the government welfare system because we don't want to work. We'd rather get as many free handouts and special, special programs and amenities as we can. And then he goes on to say um, that uh, black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. And the larger the brain, the larger the capacity for intelligence. You know? And so we have very little intelligence. And that is, uh, is uh, evidenced by the fact that uh, black students consistently score lower on the SATs than white students. Again, this is a, this is a true statement. Um, the, you know, the facts will show you that. But he's not, he's not looking for the reason why. It has nothing to do with one's brain. Most black kids in this country uh, live in the inner cities. And the school system in the inner city is not as good as the school system in the suburbs. Black kids who go to the suburb schools, they score just as well, if not higher, than many of the white kids. And white kids who go to school in the inner city, they also score very low. So he's not doing that kind of research, right? He's right. just seeing the end result. So I'm listening to him. Now, here's the thing. Is what he is saying offensive? Yes, it's very offensive. Am I offended by it? Absolutely not. And the reason why I am not offended by it is because it doesn't apply to me. The guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, he doesn't know me. You know, he, he knows nothing about me. He only met me 10 minutes ago. And he's telling this lie. So why should I be offended by an untruth? Hmm. Why should I let my emotions get all stirred up by somebody who doesn't even know me? If my mother or father were to tell me, Daryl, you know, I think you're prone to crime. Or I think you're lazy. Or I think, you know, you're not that bright. You're not, you're not very intelligent. I might believe them because, you know, they brought me into this world. They raised me. But somebody who doesn't know me, why should I believe that? Mm. So I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not offended by it. But here's also the thing. When he comes into that room and sees me, and he's expecting a white guy, and he gets me, his wall goes right up. I'm the enemy. All right. And so he's on the attack. You know, I, I, I am his nemesis. All right. So if I want to plant a seed, I cannot plant a seed when somebody's wall is up because the seed's going to hit the wall and fall back on my side. I want that wall to come down. Now, I just told you that people everywhere want to be heard and they want to be respected. So I gave him the respect of letting him say what he wanted to say. He's never had that from somebody like me. Usually when we talk to people like me, within 45 seconds, there's pushback, you know, you know and, or, or it may even escalate to, uh, to physical because, you know, you're, you're being very offensive to somebody like me. And so, but yet I'm, I'm just sitting back listening to him. I'm not respecting what he's saying but I'm respecting his right to say it, mm. all right? I'm also giving him another thing that people want, to be heard, right? Mm. He's Big never been time. able to get all that. Yeah, he, you know, he, he's never been able to get all that stuff out to, to, some, to his adversary. I'm just listening to him let, him, let him bring it on, right? And so as I'm doing that, that wall is coming down, all right? So now the wall is down, he said his piece, and now he feels compelled to reciprocate. I let him speak, so now he's going to let me say what I want to say. And so I could go on the offense and attack him verbally, and, and I would be well within my right, um, because after all, what he said to me, I could say, hey, no, you're the criminal. You're the one hanging black men from trees. You're the one dragging black people behind pickup trucks and bombing their churches and on and on and on, and I would be right. But if I go on the attack, on the offense, that wall is going to go back up, and I've defeated my purpose. So I want to keep the wall down. 
Because when the wall is up, his ears are like this. Yeah. Right? When the wall is down, that's when you hear something. So rather than go on the offense, I go on the defense. And I said, well, look, Mr. Kelly, I, I, I hear what you're saying. However, I don't have a criminal record. Nobody in my family has a criminal record. Uh, I've never been on welfare. Nobody in my family has been on welfare. And as, you know, as far as my brain goes, I've never measured the size, but I'm sure it's the same size as anybody else's. And as far as the SATs go, my SATs were good enough to get me into college, and I have a college degree. Now, I'm saying all this knowing that he barely made it out of high school. I know that I have more intelligence in my little finger than he and his whole clan put together. But I'm not going to throw that in his face. Because what, what would that do? Bring that wall back up. So just, just leave the wall down and talk about myself. And I can tell you this, uh, Raghu, I've been doing this for 36 years. And I've heard this time and time again when these people relinquish their ideology and give me their robes and hoods and stuff. You know, we, we talk about what, you know, what happened. And... What happens is this, they go home and they think about what transpired during the day and our conversation. And they think, wow, you know, I just had a conversation with a black man for three hours and we didn't fight. You know, that's a first, right? And, and, and then, and because they heard what I was saying because the wall was down, they think, you know, they process it. They think, you know, what he said about such and such makes sense. Oh, but he's black. Yeah, but what he said was true. Oh, but he's black. So they're having a cognitive dissonance where they know what I said was true, but they don't want to believe it because it came from a black source. So that becomes a dilemma for them. Mm -hmm. And they have to figure out, do I disregard this guy's skin color and, 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 uh, and believe it to be true because I know it to be true and change my direction? Or do, I, or do I take into consideration his skin color and go on living a lie, knowing that I'm living a lie? Mm. That's their dilemma. All right. So fortunately for many of them, they, they chose the right path. Others, uh, you know, they so some people will go to their grave being hateful, violent and racist. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, and in, in the case of uh, Mr. Kelly, he actually he eventually laid down his robes. He gave them to you. It was just an evolvement over the over time based on his relationship with you, and then how he started, I guess, looking at all the other aspects of his life, of the people he was around, that led him to do this. You, you weren't on any mission. No. And, and, act, and, and, and really, you know, I never set out. You see, a lot of people are confused by this. I never set out to convert the Klan. That was not my mission. My mission was simply to find out, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? That's all I want to know. I, I never dreamed these people were going to change because um, you've heard it when you were a kid, just like I did. We, we've heard the adages, uh, a tiger does not change its stripes. A leopard does not change its spots. Mm. So yeah. why would I think a Klansman would change his robe and hood? Well, that's where I was mistaken. That's what I believed, but I was mistaken. Mm. Because a tiger and leopard are born with their stripes and spots. A Klansman is not born with his racism. That is a learned behavior. And what can be learned can also be unlearned. Mm. It may take a little while, but it can be done. Mm. Yeah. And so when that happened, you know, when that happened, I was shocked. Now, he, his was not the first robe that I got. I, you know, sub, I, I interviewed a lot of people, and I, I got another one first, and his would come later. But um, when, when, when it first happened that I got my first robe, I was like, wow, you know, this is crazy. And but then it yeah. began happening again and again and again. I thought, you know, I'm on to something. I need to keep doing this. And that's why I do it. Mm, unbelievable. Yeah. And you know, doesn't it this inform? This can really inform what's going on right now. More. Um, more along me, the political divide and, and let the, me tell the complete you what's going, polarization that, that in between. Let me tell you what's going on right now that the media does not talk about. Okay? This is something that, that we really need to take a look at and we need to address and, um, and understand. Okay. This country was built on a two-tier society. White supremacy 
and slavery. And as we progress through the years, we progress like this, maybe even like this, but we did not progress like this. Yeah, right? evenly, those who are Exactly. Watching. Okay, so when I was a child, when you were a child, the black population in this country was 12%. And Native Americans were just under 1%. So let's just say 1%. A Hispanic people, 2%, 3%. Asians, 4%. Um, whites, 84 86%. But we were 12%, all right? Today, in 2020, black people are still 12%, 12.9, like 13%. So we, we really have not grown. Native Americans remain at, uh, at 1%. Uh, Asians are like at 6, at 6%. Hispanic people have grown to like 17 point something percent, almost 18%, all right? So if you take just uh, 12% black people plus 17% Hispanic or Latino, that's 29% non-white. So this is happening, all right? Mm. And what the Klan and neo-Nazis and alt-right people tell me, Daryl, I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation. So that's what they're concerned about. So that's why we're seeing all these groups now popping up and saying, you know, come join us. You know, we're going to take our country back. We're going to send those people back to where they came from. We're going to build that wall on and on and on and on. We're going to make America great again, that kind of thing. All right. So that they're seeing their landscape changing and they're becoming unhinged about it. So what happens is these people, here's the thing. If you look at the census, the census is done every 10 years. Go, you know, go, go on Google and Google uh, the United States Census Bureau. Look at 1960 and every 10 years to where we are today. You're gonna see 12%, 12%, 12%, 12% for us, all right? And you're gonna see the uh, Hispanic people growing a little bit, or a lot actually, and the Asians growing a little bit, all right? So it is well predicted by 2042, which is 22 years from right now, this country will be 50-50, 50% white, 50% non-white. And between 2045 and 2050, it's gonna flip. And for the first time in the history of this country, white people would be a minority. And so, while there are plenty, plenty of white people who welcome that and embrace that and say, hey, you know, that's evolution, that's cool, I don't have a problem with that. There is a percentage who are very uncomfortable about that because when you have sat on the throne of power for, for, for almost 400 years, well, 401 years since I've been here, right? I came here in 1619 as a slave, so now we're in 2020. So when you've been on the throne of power for 401 years, and you see your throne legs being whittled down and, and, and your posterior is being lowered down to the level of the inferior people, you know, while you were supposed to be superior, um, that's very disconcerting. Nobody wants to get off the throne, you know, when, you know, once you're on it, you know, nobody wants to give up power. So mm. they're, they're seeing that and, um, and, and they're becoming very uh, disconcerted by it. So they go and join these groups that promise to take the country back to make America great again and do and yeah. build the wall and so forth and so on yeah. and, and send people out. So, but what happens is this, when those groups don't do it, they figure, you know what? If the Klan can't do it and the neo-Nazis can't do it, I'll do it myself. And that's when they walk into a black church in South Carolina, boom, 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 or into the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, boom, 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 or the Walmart in El Paso, boom, 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 right? Yeah. These people are called lone wolves. Now, we have intelligence agencies that have operatives that go and join these groups. You know, they can fit the part, they sign up and join and work their way in and they gather intelligence and they do foil a lot of plots, you know, because these people want to start the race war. That's what they want. And these intelligence operatives thwart a lot of plots. However, you cannot infiltrate a lone wolf. How do you infiltrate one person? You can't. And as we get closer and closer to 2042, we're going to see more and more of these lone wolves. Now, you just saw a lone wolf a couple weeks ago. The, the guy that came from a 17-year-old boy that came from Illinois to Wisconsin with his gun, 
shot three people, killed two of them, and then went home. That's a lone wolf, all right? And we're going to see more and more of those people. And every time one of them gets busted and and the authorities go go to that person's home or compound and raid it, what do they find? A big cache of automatic weapons. That is for the race war. So we need to be vigilant. We need to 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 look into this because it's going to, you know, 20, 2020, 2042 is right upon us. You remember 1999? Everybody was freaking out about the year 2000. Yeah. Y- Y2K. Yeah. You know, yeah. My, v- my VCR won't work and the world's going to yeah. come to an end. Yeah. All that. 2042 is the white supremacist Y2K. Mm. They, they mm. are really becoming unhinged about mm. that. Um, I, God, this is... Even the uh, we're in the apocalypse, apocalypse right now with the fires and the hurricanes and the pandemic and the yeah you know, this. Uh, but you know, that, it, we are probably in one of the best times. Uh, I mean, as bittersweet as it is, we're in one of the best positions that we've ever been in right now because a lot of things that that we've been hiding and keeping under the carpet, yeah, uh, keeping locked in the closet. Yep. are being exposed, and yep. now we have to address them and take the taboo off having these kinds of conversations. Yeah, and but, Daryl, what's so um, inspiring, of course, your story is so inspiring, but just getting down to the, like, the small parts of it, the humanity, the wall coming down and, and, and just humanity being able to meet one another, so to speak, respect is allowed to happen, listening and hearing is allowed to happen, and uh, not getting into that crouch ready to jump over the table and protect oneself goes away in the moment. And those moments are really what it's all about. I mean, our, I told you about uh, uh, Ramdas and uh, who we are with Love Server Member Foundation and so on. And he would say, in terms of doing uh, real social action in any way, was to do inner social action at the same time. You can't go out there and be angry because you're going to have the opposite results. And that once you have uh, uh, gotten to that whole part of ourselves that we each have, excuse me, uh, then just do, you can then do what you have done, which is so, again, inspiring, which is just radiate non-judgment, being able to sit and listen, being able to the the idea of of uh, an unconditionality that you're going in there with rather than the conditioned thing this guy is this he's that i'm that and and that all starts to break down so it, it's truly amazing uh that and i was trying to say before also that this is a way for us to go forward and you know we're not even talking about i mean this is of course so uh endemic for as you said 401 years uh 400 years uh, it's it's just uh, it's hard to to fathom because of of its uh, deep 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 roots well th- that's that's where you get the systemic it's just it's yeah, like yeah exactly. the system there okay? yeah. so yeah. you know there are people who address the systemic um i address you know the individuals and we all have to work together yeah exactly you know? yeah and and well, that's the systemic goes into the polarization that we are in right now politically, yes. election coming, and we can't talk to the other side. There is just the the, the it's so similar. <laughs> I mean, if you could uh, make uh, yourself into a million Daryls and go around and be able to do what you did with uh, with with this person who completely with mr kelly who turned around in well, he the went end. on you know he started as a grand dragon when i met him yeah. and he went to he went he, he got elevated to the imperial wizard and and when he when he uh, changed his mind and and renounced and all that he, he was an imperial wizard he was, he was the mm. national leader mm. but is he uh, still alive have, by the way yeah uh, yes he is and uh yeah he, he's, he's doing fine um you know it took him a while to um to find a job you know that he could keep and so he kind of keeps a low profile now because that mm-hmm. stigma follows him around, even though he mm-hmm. is. Do you still speak to him? Once in a while, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh. But That's... I have another uh, uh, interview coming up here 
Yes, uh, yes, you do. You've got to go. I know. I was told I get one hour, and we're exactly at an hour. And I got to thank you so much for sharing your story. It's my pleasure. I hope to talk to you again. Yes, Daryl, and uh, we'll uh, we'll have. By the way, all the show notes and everything else that you can connect with Daryl and his story and everything else, and maybe a little bit of music too, because we need yeah. to talk about that. We'll have to do something else another time. We'll do talk. part two next yeah, time. We'll part, do, yeah, absolutely. Thank you again. This is Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, Deb. <laughs>